Let us pray. Gracious God, in the words we hear this morning, your word to us, challenge us where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we are hurting, and remind us of whose and whose we are. We are yours, Lord. May your word speak to us and remind us of this truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's first reading comes from the New Testament, Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, beginning at chapter 4, verses 13, continuing to the first, chapter, first verse of chapter 5. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Listen now to God's word to you and to me. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain Jesus, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has visible, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy created one of our culture's most popular fictional characters. Gene Roddenberry gave him the opportunity to do this, but it was Nimoy who developed the now-famous Spock of Star Trek fame. 
A key moment in Spock's unique creation was during the filming of one of the first episodes of the series. Everyone on the bridge in the scene was freaking out about something or other, and Spock's line was supposed to be a simple, fascinating. Nimoy first delivered the line, fascinating, in the same excited, frantic tone of everyone else on the set. The director stopped the scene, took Nimoy aside and said, no, you need to be the different one. Easy to say, but difficult to do. But Nimoy gave it a try and said, fascinating, in his own unique way. And by being the different one in that scene and every scene that followed, Spock became a character for the ages and changed the center of gravity for the entire series. He took live long and prosper to a whole nother level. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was the different one. His family saw it, his friends saw it, the leaders saw it, and nothing accentuated his difference more than his willingness to engage and relate with all manner of people, not just with his Jewish siblings or his family or his followers, but also with tax collectors, sinners and women, children, lepers, and the demon-possessed, idolaters, Israel's occupiers, and even the dead. Where the world saw division and separation, Jesus saw an opportunity for real, authentic connection. Nothing, in my opinion, made Jesus more different, more unique than his desire, his commitment to bring people, all kinds of people, together. Today's passage from Mark's Gospel immediately follows two really important scenes in the ministry of Jesus, events that help us better understand the passage we heard today. The first is the healing of a great multitude of people by the Sea of Galilee. The second is the appointing of the Twelve Apostles. In both stories, Jesus is taking a disparate group of people and bringing them together as one. In the first account, people, we are told, from all over the region come to hear Jesus speak and to be healed by his word. And by the power of his very presence, Jesus turns this crazy crowd into a people shaped by him. In the second story, Jesus takes 12 strangers from all walks of life and begins to mold them into a family by giving these 12 men a shared purpose and a shared passion. In both cases, it's pretty clear Jesus is bringing people together, people the world never would have thought to bring together, and this provides really important context for the passage before us today, where Jesus speaks of the danger of a house or a kingdom divided against itself. A house divided, we are told, cannot stand. Jesus gives this simple lesson in response to the accusation that he has been given the power to heal by visible the ruler of the demons. Jesus is not too pleased with this accusation. How could he be working for a demon, he argues, when I'm doing so much good in the world? No, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. His work, his important work of healing and wholeness, of love and compassion, of community building, is directed and empowered by the very spirit of the living God. 
African-American mystic and scholar Howard Thurman, he believed that the Spirit of God, God's Spirit in the world, was the unifying principle of all of life. He believed that once someone realized this truth, the reconciling nature of God's very presence and the power of the Spirit in all and for all, once you recognize this, he believed the awareness of it became at once the most crucial experience in a person's life of faith. He writes, It says that whoever is aware of the Spirit of God in themselves enters the doors that lead into the life of their fellow people. The same idea is stated in ethical terms in the New Testament, when the suggestion is made that if a person says they love God, whom they hath not seen, and does not love their brother and sister who is with them, they are a liar, and the truth does not dwell in them. The way of unity is difficult, he continues, because it's very comforting to withdraw from, the, withdraw from the responsibility of unity with one's fellow people and to enter alone into the solitary contemplation with God. One can have perfect solitary communion without the risks of being misunderstood, of having one's words twisted, of having to be on the defensive about one's true or alleged attitude. In the quiet fellowship with one's God, one may seem to be relieved of any necessity to make headway against heavy odds. This is why, he argues, one encounters persons of deep piousness and religiosity who are intolerant and actively hostile toward their fellow people. In fact, some of the most terrifying hate organizations in our country, he writes, are made up in large part of persons who are very devout in their worship of their God. About two decades ago, the Presbyterian Church USA, the national body of our church, identified three core values to frame the church's mission and ministry in the 21st century. You might recall them. They were peace, unity, and purity, or PUP. Horrible acronym, but there you go. This language of peace, unity, and purity was an attempt by the national leadership to keep our church together in a time of growing division. It didn't really work. The left, in large part, took up the work of peacemaking. The right, in large part, took up the work of purity. And poor unity was left alone at the altar. No, not the left or the right in the church, or even those in the muddy, messy middle, no one really grabbed hold of the task of unity. And that's because unity is really hard work, maybe the hardest work of all. Unity is hard because it requires compromise and the letting go of power and control. Unity, real unity, requires the setting aside of our burning issues, whatever they might be, in service of the body as a whole. And yet, Jesus' words remain true even today. A house divided cannot stand. Maybe you heard it, but in today's passage, I think Jesus utters one of the most disturbing and devastating things he ever says out loud, that there is an unforgivable, eternal sin. And the sin is not murder or idolatry or infidelity, No, the unforgivable sin is blaspheme 
of the Holy Spirit. This may sound a bit odd to us, but make no mistake about it, this is a warning shot across the bow. This is a signal flare to all who are frustrated and annoyed by Jesus' insistence of accepting and loving and being in communion with all kinds of people. The unforgivable sin is a reminder of what matters most to God, that we are one. Unity is God's most pressing issue. As a body shaped and empowered by God's spirit, the church is here to profess in word and in deed that we are all one in Christ, all one by the power of the spirit, all one world under God. Unity in Christ, unity through the spirit, unity under God. God. Christ died and rose again to reconcile the world to God. This has been and always will be the work of the Spirit to bring together that which has been torn apart. Now to be clear, this is not to say that unity as a goal is about whitewashing our differences. Our differences are beautiful and highlight the creativity and the wonder of God. No, unity is not about erasing all that makes us unique from each other and pretending that we all agree. We don't, and we never will, and that's okay. Unity is not conformity. Unity is embracing our differences in service of a greater purpose and mission. Jesus asked people to repent of their sins and to believe in the good news. He did not ask them to give up their language or their heritage or their race or their personality or their preferences. He invited them to give their whole selves as they are over to God so they could join in the Spirit's work of building God's kingdom here on earth. And I am more convinced than ever, given the climate that we are in, that God's kingdom is built not by purity or by power. God's kingdom is one whose building blocks are people, ordinary, broken, beautiful people like you and like me, who commit to being in relationship with one another no matter what. I mean, imagine for a moment how powerful our witness would be as a church if we prioritized unity over right thoughts, right actions, or right beliefs. Nothing would make us more different, more unique in the eyes of the world a world where division is celebrated and perpetuated through all kinds of things, things like nationalism, party affiliation, and even racial identity. Imagine how different the world would be if we in the church committed to being one body above all else. I hate to admit it, but I've been here a year now, so I have to be honest with you. One of my favorite shows is The Walking Dead. I know. I'm working through it. I know, I know. One of the reasons I enjoy this show so much, though, is that it lifts up the question in every episode, the question that I think is always right before humanity but often gets overlooked. The question is, are we going to work together to solve our problems, or are we going to fight one another to protect what is our own? Are we going to assume the best in each other, or are we going to protect our little corner of the world at all costs? Are we together, or are we separate? The question never really gets resolved in the show, but it has been resolved in our faith tradition. 
A house divided cannot stand, and the only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the spirit of the living God. A spirit that is always and forever reconciling that which has been torn apart, bringing together that which has been separated. From the very moment of Pentecost up until today, at this moment, the Spirit has been bringing people together into true communion, true communion with God and with one another. What if this is the call of our church, the church, in today's present climate? Not to save the world or feed the world or educate the world. There are thousands of wonderful nonprofits and NGOs that can do all that a lot more effectively than we can. But we have a task, a gift, a calling. What if our job, our only job, is to show the world that with forgiveness and grace and the Spirit's living presence, unity is actually possible? Unity is not a pipe dream. It is something we can live each and every day. What if our job, our only job, with the Spirit's help, of course, with grace, with forgiveness, is to live as if Republicans and Democrats, Black Lives Matter activists and public safety officers, white nationalists and immigrants, young and old, rich and poor, gay and straight, cisgender and transgender, all of us can come together under God and learn to love one another as Christ loves us. Grace Thomas was a white woman from Birmingham, Alabama. When she married in the late 1930s, Grace moved to Atlanta and took a clerking job in one of the state government offices there. Through her work, Grace developed an interest in law and in politics, and she enrolled in a local law school that offered night classes. After years and years of part-time study, Grace finally completed law school, and her family wondered what she was going to do with this degree. They were shocked when Grace announced she had decided to enter the 1954 election race for governor of the state of Georgia. There were nine candidates for governor that year, eight men and Grace, but there was really only one issue on the ballot. In the famous Brown versus the Board of Education case that year, the Supreme Court had declared that racially separate but equal schools were unconstitutional and paved the way, of course, for integration. Eight of the gubernatorial, gubernatorial candidates spoke out angrily against the court's decision. Only Grace said that she thought the decision was fair and just and ought to be welcomed by the citizenry. Her campaign slogan that year was, Say Grace at the polls. Not many did. She ran dead last, and her family was relieved that she had gotten that out of her system. But she hadn't. Eight years later, in 1962, she ran for governor again. By then, the civil rights movement had gained momentum, and her message of racial harmony was really controversial. She received death threats every day, and her family traveled with her to provide her protection and support as she campaigned. On election day, she finished dead last again, but her campaign was a testimony to goodwill and tolerance. One day in that campaign, Grace made an appearance in the small town of Louisville, Georgia. In those days, the centerpiece of the town square in Louisville was not the courthouse or a war memorial. It was an old slave market where human beings had once been bought and sold like cattle. 
Grace chose the slave market as the site of her campaign speech, and as she stood on the very spot where slaves had been auctioned, a hostile crowd of storekeepers and farmers gathered to hear what this woman had to say. The old has passed away, she began, and the new has come. Gesturing to the market, she said, this place represents all about our past over which we must repent. A new day is here, a day when Georgians, white and black, can join hands to work together. This was provocative talk in 1962 Georgia, and the crowd was not happy. They got pretty riled up. Are you a communist? Someone shouted at her. Grace paused mid-sentence. No, she said suddenly. Certainly, I, I certainly not. Well then, continued the heckler, where'd you get these damned ideas? Grace thought for a minute, and then she pointed to the steeple of a nearby church. I got them over there, she said, in Sunday school. Amen.